The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment. And welcome, everybody, to Wrestling Unwrapped, episode 51, here on the W2M Network. My name is not Patrick Ketza, in case you could not tell. I am Harry Broadhurst. I am the traditional co-host of the show. Patrick has shimmered this weekend, as many of you know, so therefore he will not be able to join us. We will be back together next week. In our later time, as we cover the Survivor Series, but for tonight, I am joined once again on Wrestling Unwrapped by my co-host for the evening, Jay Hawk himself, Jared Hawkins. Good evening, Jay Hawk. Good evening, Harry. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, sir. What, my third time on here, I think? Second time on W2M, third overall. You co-hosted once when we were on um, VOC as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I, get the, I, I get the different air confused. So. I believe the last time you were on, we did Barely Legal 97. You know, I'm, I, I know we've done that one before, but I want to say last time with Bash at the Beach. You know, you might be right. I think Barely Legal might have been the VOC show, and the one available in the archives is Bash at the Beach 96. I mean, it's possible if people know. It's possible if people look on YouTube, our version of Barely Legal 97 might be up as well. Oh, by the way, speaking of W2M, we are indeed a presentation of the W2M Network, available online at www.w2mnet.com, where you can find information and podcasts about everything ranging from the world to football to soccer to pro wrestling, such as Wrestling Unwrapped here, to video games, entertainment, and so much more. That's www.w2mnet.com. Dot com. In addition, we are also occasionally provided to you over at 411mania.com backslash wrestling and at lastwordonprowrestling.com. Uh, we picked a hell of a show here, Jayhawk. Yes, in, in fact, we did. I was actually glad when you suggested this one because I hadn't seen it in a while. And for nostalgic purposes, it's one of my favorites. So I'm really glad to be able to relive this one. If only the reason we were relive, reliving it was a little bit brighter. Oh, that that gets true, but we are recording this show on November twelfth, two thousand and seventeen. Yesterday, November eleventh, marks the twelve year anniversary of the passing of former WWE heavyweight champion and all around wrestler extraordinaire Eddie Guerrero. Therefore, we have decided that we are going to dedicate tonight's edition of Wrestling Unwrapped to Eddie and remember his crowning achievement in the WWE when he won his heavyweight championship. So that takes us back to the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California for No Way Out 2004. Are you ready to get started, sir? Yes, sir. All right, and now here's Harry with the... Oh, wait, that's, that's me. Never mind. All right. Sorry, course of habit of Patrick introducing me for the results. Some things, old habits die hard, as it were. Yeah, All right. Not, not, like, not like this is my first go-around in the podcast world. Things happen when we record live, everybody. <laughs> so, 
as mentioned, we are in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California, an old WCW stronghold, actually. If I'm not mistaken, several of the later-day Super Bowl pay-per-views were inside of the Cow Palace. I seem to remember Super Bowl Eight with the Hogan-Stingery match was almost certainly there, and I want to say Super Bowl Nine from 1999 was there as well, if memory serves. Super uh, Bowl Seven with Hogan Piper went there as well. If they did the Piper did all the uh, Alcatraz promo, voting that up. And that, of course, led to a match that we actually have covered in the archives before, Piper and Hogan inside of the cage at Halloween Havoc 1997. I'm so sorry you had to cover that. Age in the cage. Although, although in fairness, you did get to cover Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio from that show, which was one of the best matches ever, period. So, uh, not all bad. As Patrick and I said while we were covering the show, that moonsault DDT dough. Oh yeah, we covered that on we covered that on my new podcast as well. You didn't give me a chance to plug my shit yet. You'll get the chance to plug your shit at the end of the podcast because that's when I plug mine. Gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. Don't worry. I got. I have that all planned out. All right. Let's get to the results here. You had attendance numbers. I don't. By all means, feel free to share them. Okay. And obviously, the current exact number, but. Uh, uh, Officially a sellout, 11,000 in the building, approximately 9,000 paid. Which means Cole claiming that they were still selling SRO tickets during the course of the show is probably complete and utter malarkey. Well, half the attendance numbers they give on the air are complete and utter malarkey, even though they're a public company and lying about stuff like that is actually illegal. So figure that one out. Don't don't tell Vince that. He he won't he doesn't like it when people deliver bad news. They end up flyer like their last name was Pritchard. Oh. Well, by the way, get, by the way, you introduced me wrong. I want to call myself Brother Love from now on. That's that hasn't been taken, Hackett. <laughs> we haven't we haven't even covered that happening on the show yet either, which makes it even funnier. All right, let's get to the results, shall we? Yes. Our opening contest sees Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati retain the WWE Tag Team titles, because I think the World Tag Team titles were on, the SmackDown Tag Team titles. When Rikishi pins Shaniqua, Linda Miles, Black China, call her what you want to, not wrong, at 8 minutes and 17 seconds with a bonsai drop. Jamie Nobleboy defeats Nidia, at 4 minutes and 26 seconds of a match where Noble is blindfolded, hooded-ish, with pay dirt, not a dragon sleeper. Taz. <clears throat> uh, it wasn't pay dirt either, more of a front guillotine, but... It was the way Grapevine body scissors uh, choked. That's what Noble called it. Fair enough. Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin defeat the APA when Bradshaw finally sells his arm, and Shelton Benjamin kicks him in the side of the head at 7.22. Hardcore Hawley pins Rhino after getting his ass kicked for most of the 9.56, but finishing Rhino off with an Alabama slam. Chavo Guerrero wins the WWE Cruiserweight title from Rey Mysterio Jr. If I'm not mistaken, Rey had actually not won on pay-per-view yet at this point. Oh, 
That's not true. No, he beat Noble at uh, he beat Noble at the Royal Rumble. Never mind. I forgot about the Royal Rumble match until I just thought of that. There. All right. Anyways, uh, Chavo pins Ray with a handful of tights on a roll up at seventeen twenty two. Kurt Angle wins the number one contendership to the SmackDown WWE Heavyweight Championship, tapping out John Cena with a grapevine ankle lock at 12 minutes and 18 seconds. And the reason we're all here, the main event itself, sees Eddie Guerrero pin Brock Lesnar with a Tornado DDT onto the title, air quotes on an audio podcast, followed by a frog splash at 30 minutes and 5 seconds. No, that time is not a typo. So, thoughts for you here, Jayhawk, before we actually get into the show. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to kind of give some thoughts uh, overall as we go match by match. But uh, over, overall, I like a very good show, in my opinion, for nostalgia reasons. I was actually kind of disappointed. It wasn't a good guy remembered watching it back, but we'll kind of go over that as we go along. Uh, the big relevant thought to me in this show is, okay, you could pretty much set your you could pretty much set your clocks by WWE pay-per-views at this time. The lights hit, the credits rolled, and it was 10.47 p.m. on the East Coast, which means two hours and 47 minutes. This pay-per-view's runtime on DVD is two hours, 32 minutes, and 35 seconds. The network version is two hours, 28 minutes, 42 seconds. They clearly did not plan this show fully in advance. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I believe they actually got the Rhino Holly match up on the heat that night. So, I mean, they were probably about 15 minutes even shorter when they initially timed it out. They actually talk about the fact, and we'll talk about, uh, we'll go into more detail on Hardcore Holly and Rhino once we get to that match when we make our way through this thing match by match here. But, yeah, they actually had a match on the SmackDown prior to this particular pay-per-view here, and it was a match where Rhino got himself disqualified, and then they got into a brawl on Sunday Night Heat, and Heyman set them up into a tag match, into a singles match here, tag match player, into a singles match here on No Way Out. Speaking of Sunday Night Heat, there was actually a six-man tag match on Sunday Night Heat that sounds very entertaining. It is on the DVD. It is not on the network version. However, if you believe the rumors, Sunday Night Heat to the network possibly as early as the end of this year. And what match would they be seeing if they were able to check in on the network for this Sunday Night Heat match, JL? Okay, uh, that match featured Akio, Kakoda, and Tajiri defeating Billy Kidman, Paul London, and Ultimo Dragon in 534. Uh, Kakoda had Dragon on his shoulder. Tajiri hit him with the buzzsaw kick. Kakoda went right into a fitting power slam, and Tajiri covered Dragon for the pin. Actually a very good, very fast-paced match. I enjoyed that finish a lot watching it. I found it on YouTube, I'm not going to lie. So it's probably going to get taken down after WWE hears this, but kick that match out. It's only got about eight minutes, including entrance. It's very good, very entertaining. Uh, if interested in seeing it after listening to this episode, I would do my best to find said YouTube link and post it on the Facebook page, facebook.com backslash wrestling unwrapped. Also, uh, longtime listeners of the show would know Akio better as Jimmy Wang Yang. 
which was actually a better gimmick, which surprised me. I, 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 I still can't believe they actually went with that gimmick for Yang, and I can't believe it worked as well as it did. Well, I mean, they had, they had a redneck redneck. Why not an Asian redneck as well? And why did they never tag team? I think, yeah. You know what? Dragon for Union without having to push it, that would have been cool. If if there was ever a cruiserweight tag team division, those two would have been perfect together. If you're waiting for me to respond to that, I really don't have anything. I'm trying to picture the team in my head, so. (laughs) Um... Well, there's a different tag team to come out of that Jamie Noble match here, but we'll talk about that in a second. Let's actually go ahead and get into the show. We are in the Cow Palace. It is February 15th, 2004, a.k.a. Hugo, son of a bitch's birthday. This is Wrestling Unwrapped, episode 51, No Way Out, 2004. And our opening, okay, well, I guess before we talk about the opening contest, we kind of have to talk about how the show opened. Um... Yeah, so 230, on the DVD, 228 on the network, and that's including the five or so minutes that were killed by having Tori and Sable come out to introduce the pay-per-view. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I completely tuned it out. I kind of vaguely remember them coming out, and I don't remember a damn thing they said. Uh, they just talked about the fact that they were in Playboy and that they were done there to give the fans what they wanted and then proceeded to only talk, which is frankly what no fans wanted. Although I will say I do not mind looking at Tori. Oh, yeah, they had that Playboy bunny thing with Stakey and somebody else at Ruckelmanian, didn't they? Yeah. I had blocked, blocked that out. Thank you for reminding me. I'm not saying to go watch it. I'm just saying, hey, Tori. I mean, I'm the four of them. I'm the four of them, Tori. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I prefer Stakey to Tori, but I, I, I'll give you Tori. To each their own, I suppose. I'm more, I'm more boobs over butt, so that kind of explains Tori for me. But anyway, we'll talk more about that later on because there's a very specific person that this conversation ties into, and we'll talk about that next. Our opening contest, scheduled for one fall, is a handicap one match. Fall. I was waiting for that. When it didn't come, I moved on. It's a handicap match for the WWE SmackDown Tag Team titles as the Bashams and Shaniqua, a.k.a. Linda Miles from Tough Enough Season 2? Two? 2, yeah. Take on the reigning and defending champions, Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati. Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati had won the titles off of the Bashams on an episode of SmackDown and the build towards this particular No Way Out show. This is after the Bashams had defeated the team of Eddie and Chavo to win the tag team titles at Survivor Series 2003, if memory serves here. Uh, Taz pretty much much sets the tone for this match right at the very start. It's a handicap match, but who's the handicap against? Yeah, pretty much. It's technically three on two, so the champion technically should have the handicap. But Shaniqua, at that point, really had not been used as a wrestler. So, yeah, it's kind of like WrestleMania 5 with the power of pain and Fuji against Demolition. Yeah, Demolition came able to isolate Fuji and win that match, and that's pretty much the goal here. If you can isolate Shaniqua, you got a shot. 
not to mention too with the uh, the Mr. Fuji thing there. Uh, Mr. Fuji, aka Harry Fujiwara, was a very well known wrestler from his time there. This is pretty much one of the first examples we've ever seen of Shaniqua in the ring on a WWE pay per view, if I'm not mistaken. Well, there was a reason for that. You do know that. Yes, she stunk terribly. She made Jackie Gato look competent. Think about that for a second. Yeah, and think that they actually chose Janiqua over Kenny King at that gate gonna tough enough? If somebody wasn't thinking clearly. Current Ring of Honor television champion Kenny King at that. Yeah. Alright, so the match itself, um, well, uh it was there. It's about yeah, the night. Pretty much. And pretty much, I mean, it, was, it really wasn't too bad overall. I mean, the Bashunk were both very good workers. Scotty Too Hotty make a great fake in peril. I mean, Rikishi, Rikishi, he got his stick, his stick work. And then you've got Shaniqua. You could make the argument that Rikishi's full of stick. Oh, I see what you did there. I see what I did there, too. Um... You know what, Shaniqua, for what she was supposed to do in this match, actually more or less held her own, in my opinion. It's not like she was in there to have in there to have any kind of scientific wrestling clinic. It's not like she was in there to have any kind of knockdown, dragout, throwdowns with anybody in the ring. There, she was there to basically boss the Bashams around and try to sneak her way into getting them the tag team titles back. So I felt like she. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the, the thing that struck me on commentary is, well, if Shaniqua gets the pin, who are the champions? Uh, it would be the Basham brothers. That's the entire point of the match. Why are we just speculating on this? I, I, I thought like they were trying to call my intelligence a little bit that Shaniqua would actually hold one half of the belt because she got the pin. Uh, they were defending the tag titles Freebird style, actually, if they would. At least if you're Michael Cole, that's what's going to happen. I, mean, I, I guess they could have, but I don't think anybody really believed that was going to be the case, no matter how the match ended up. So. All right, so with pro wrestling being where it is now in regards to the whole, especially the WWE being anti-men on women violence here, is it weird going back and watching shows like this in the archives and seeing the blatant example of male on female violence here with Rikishi, first Samoa, Samoan dropping Shaniqua and then hitting her with the bonsai drop for the finish? Yeah, for some people it might be. For me, it's really not. Uh, I mean, you figure WWE doesn't really do it. And really, TNA, I'm sorry, Impact, or whatever they're called this week, doesn't really do it anymore. But there's still so much intergender wrestling in professional wrestling in general that it, that, it, just, it doesn't dawn on me when I'm watching it that, hey, WWE doesn't do this anymore. To me, it's just another match. Uh, you can make the argument that Shaniqua was as big, if not bigger, than Scotty as well. Yeah, at least, at least tight-wise, I could make that argument. Uh, I, would put, I would put the argument that she had probably more muscle definition than Scotty did as well. Well, it's hard to tell with Scotty. Yeah, Scotty's not exactly wrestling with his shirt off underneath that gimmick, so. That's true. I mean, for all, for, for all we know, he could have been jacked. We have no idea. Well, when he came back in NXT back in, like, 2010, dude was walking a six-pack, so. 
Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, it's entirely possible. But uh, that being said, uh, your thoughts on the finish there? Do you think they made the right decision by having Shaniqua take the fall? Absolutely, I think that was the right decision. Uh, I really felt the bat at, at the time that the Bastion had a great upside. And I really, you know, felt like they were losing too many matches like it was. And in terms of if you don't want to go with the title change, you'd rather keep them strong for a future push if need be. Were you still doing SmackDown reviews at this point? I don't remember if I was doing Raw or SmackDown at the time. I believe I was doing just Raw at that point, but uh, I, I switched back and forth so often at that point, I don't remember for sure. Yeah, because I tried to look for uh, I tried to look for your former boss's uh, review of the show here, but I couldn't find it. Should have got something. I could have found it. Uh, I'm half tempted to go into the uh, go into archive.org and see if I can't find it in there and read it after the show's done. But as mentioned, Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati retained the SmackDown Tag Team titles. When Rikishi pinched Nikwa, they would go on to defend those tag team titles in a four-way match at WrestleMania 20 against the team of the APA and what would be the APA's last teaming together on a pay-per-view. Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas, and were the Bashams the fourth team in that match? Uh, that makes sense, but I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't think they were, is my problem. I'm trying so, to think. Uh, well, while we talk about the next match, I'll go ahead and look that up here. Our next contest is the boyfriend versus girlfriend match, as Tony Chimmel so politely points out to us, as Jamie Noble takes on Nidia and what nature bought Nidia. Oh, boy. I, I, I got to stop you for a second. Did you say taking on Nidia and what nature bought Nidia? Brought Nidia. Brought. I think and brought by, might be a better word, but... Yeah, and I think... Uh, yeah, and I think Jamie Noble's money actually bought them, if we're going storyline perspective here. Apparently, to Jerry's, apparently to Jerry's blackness makes your boobs swell. Uh, apparently. Hmm. Who knew? Yeah, but that was basically what's got the cup to Jerry sprayed Nidia with the black mist on accident. Nidia was blind. Jamie Noel basically treated her like garbage for probably six weeks, two months, somewhere in that range. And she finally got fed up with it, and here's the match. Revealing the fact that she could still see on an episode of SmackDown leading into this match. Um... Our general manager, Paul Heyman, added the stipulation why Heyman's working against a fellow heel is questionable at this point, but I digress. That in order for Noble to experience what Nidia went through, Noble would have to be blindfolded for this match. And by blindfolded, he means hood-style WrestleMania 7. As far as the match goes... Uh, Nidia looked nice. I don't mean good as in, in the ring. I mean she looked nice. I, I honestly wasn't looking at her from anywhere from the waist down or the neck up, but that's 100% accurate when it comes to what we particularly saw here. Uh, 
She definitely had new assets, and she knew how to flaunt them at this show. Because that T-shirt's probably about two sizes too small. And yeah, too my generous. Yeah, well, let's actually try to talk about the match a little bit here, in the age of Harvey Weinstein. I don't want to get too far into that discussion. Fair, but uh, yeah, but uh, I, I'll say this: this uh, this match was not my cup of tea. This is not the kind of thing I want to see in my wrestling. But the crowd was into every second of this match, and it was a little four four minute, and I think you said four twenty kick. I got four twenty five, but four and a half minutes of just yeah, quick comedy leading into the finish, so it, it's inoffensive. I believe the proper word would be fluff. Okay, maybe not. Hey, you're, going, you're, talking, you're, talking about, you're talking about needy again. I can't get off of that. <laughs> There's a get-off joke there somewhere I'm not going to make. Uh, filler, I believe, would be the best way to describe this match. That, that's, probably a little bit, that's probably a little bit better. I can still turn that around, too, but I'm not going to. Yes, we're not going to fill her. We're going to talk about the match now. Um, you know, for as much credit as Taz gets for his uh, color commentary work, um, he should stick to color commentary because play-by-play is clearly not his thing. That was most definitely not a dragon sleeper, Taz. No, I was uh, you, you said Jamie Noble had a specific name for it. I, it it's a front guillotine what it was. I have on my actual typed out results here, because I actually type out the results of the uh, DVDs that I've watched and stuff, so I can keep track of what matches I have with who and how much I have of people. You've seen the insanity that goes into this before. I don't feel the need to go back into this once again. That being said, on my actual type out here, I have Jamie Noble, Caps, Nidia, Pay Dirt, parentheses, Guillotine Choke at 426. Yeah, see, I hear, I hear the name Pater, and I'm thinking Shelton Benjamin finished, but well, that's what I will call it. That's what I will call it. I don't remember him referring it to that to it as that, but it's been a while since I've watched the Scarif Smackdown. So I do believe it was referred to by this particular name before on screen. I'm not certain, but I believe it was because this would have been around with the. This would have been around the time that Noble was working with Nungio, aka Little Guido, as well. Yeah, it, it made sense with the with the gimmick going on at the time, with the storyline going on at the time. I just, like you might be right. I might want to call. I just don't remember being referred to it as that. The finish is pretty much straight out of the old house show circuit for Rick Rude and Jake the Snake Roberts, with instead of Roberts being the one to lift, instead of the babyface being the one to lift the hood, the heel does in this particular instance. Noble lifts up the the blindfold, the hood, whatever you want to call it, and sees Nitty on the top rope and proceeds to snapmare her off and then puts the hood back down as he does so, leading to the aforementioned guillotine choke for the finish. Um, so I read J.D. Dunn's review for this particular show in order to do some more research about the show to try to pick up little pieces of information and stuff here. And long-time listeners of the show know that I have referred to JD's reviews many times on these shows before. By all means, if you guys get a chance, I highly recommend that you check out his work. He's one of the better writers, review writers in my opinion. That being said, his thought process to this particular match was that in order to steal a line from Krusty the Clown, in order for the pie gag to work, the poor sap has to have dignity to start with. 
maybe yeah. to the home, maybe to the home audience that might connect here. But I agree with what you said. I definitely think that the crowd in attendance was definitely into this match. Yeah, that's the it. Yeah, they were reacting to everything. Yeah, it was, like, like I said, it, it was comedy. You've got things like uh, needing it behind Noble while Noble struggling to find her, and she doing a uh, really bad version of the Big Wiggle. I mean, they're going for comedy. The crowd reacted to it. Yeah, it, 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 it. This match was like the Joey Ryan of No Way Out. If you like it, great. If you don't, oh well. It is what it is. Uh, in my opinion, the biggest reaction was when Noble tried to reach out and touch somebody. <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's as good a place as any to move on, don't you? Yes, please. Um, so, for as much heat as that last match had, this next match has absolutely none. The world's greatest, and eventually wrestling's greatest once they got to Ring of Honor, tag team. And by the way, uh, research tells me that it was indeed the Bashams as the fourth team in that WrestleMania 20 match. The world's greatest tag team of Charlie Hawks and Shelton Benjamin take on the APA in what would be their last ever two-on-two tag match in pay-per-view history for them as a team. Which I actually didn't make that connection with until you said that, but yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. The John Bradshaw Layfield character would begin right after WrestleMania 20, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somewhere in a- somewhere in April, but they did uh, they did something like they did something on SmackDown where they fired Ron Simmons like the next week they started the JBL gimmick. Because I know for a fact that uh, his very first singles match on his very first singles match on pay per view as John Bradshaw Layfield was the horrendously bloody Judgment Day 2005 match between himself and Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, we can get into a lot more detail about the JBL single push at a later time. I, I, it, it's a, again trying to compare it to something else. It's kind of like the Ginger Mahal single push. Yeah. You know, Guy's been a tag team wrestler forever. All of a sudden, I want to push him in main event without actually giving him any single win before that. That kind of ended up being very good, but I was not thrilled with him getting the push as fast as he did. Yeah, I was going to say the JBL run. I mean, and we're getting kind of off topic here, so we'll get back to the match in a second here. The JBL singles run was actually a whole lot better than it really had any right to be. And I think a lot of that had to do with Bradshaw's dedication to the gimmick. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Bradshaw was taking his push at, and his run at the top of the cards much more seriously than Mahal did because Mahal kept, or seemingly to me, and especially as somebody who was reviewing all of his pay-per-view matches on uh, WU Reacts with Patrick, uh, it seemed like Mahal was having the same pay-per-view match over and over again, to, to, regardless of who the opponent was, whereas Bradshaw was able to cater his offense to work with the person that he was working with, be it the knockdown drag-out brawls with Eddie Guerrero in both the Judgment Day match as well as the Texas Bull Rope match at the Great American Bash, to the slugfest that he had with Taker at SummerSlam, to the the uh, barbed wire the barbed wire cage match he had with Big Show at No Way Out in 2005. 
Okay, can somebody go to weather.com and do a curse for the temperature in hell? Harry and I are agreeing way too much today. <laughs> uh, we should use what the forecast instead. It would be funnier. Yeah, sure. I love I love that app. But anyway, we're getting we're getting way off topic now. Oh well, it wouldn't be an episode of Wrestling Unwrapped if we didn't. All right, tag match play up. Would this this would be pre Teddy Long though, so I guess that joke's not relevant yet. Anyway. Uh, Haas and Benjamin versus Bradshaw and Forex. So Bradshaw comes into this match with a taped arm due to it being worked on by Shelton on SmackDown prior where Shelton would work over Bradshaw's arm with a Fujiwara arm bar. However, Bradshaw would suck it up and hit the clothesline from hell for the finish anyway. This particular contest sees Charlie Haas, the victim of a suck it up clothesline from hell, and then Shelton Benjamin sidekicks Bradshaw, one right in the side of the head for the finish at 722. Um, I believe it was once referred to as perfectly acceptable wrestling, except if you're in that crowd, in which case you don't give a crap. Yeah, I, I, I know that the crowd was very quiet at this point here. Uh, I'm really not sure. I didn't think the match was that, was that bad. It's just, yeah, if you don't care, you don't care. Yeah. Hawk and Benjamin are one of my favorite tag teams of all time. Very, I, they have a very old, always had a very old school feel. A lot of good double teaming. Yeah, a, yeah, a lot of, a lot of crisp moves. I, mean, I, I enjoy watching them work anyway. I think the clash of style occurs this one a little bit though. But you got the, the two great wrestlers in Hawk and Benjamin, and yeah, Bradshaw and Farouk are far more brawlers, more power based wrestlers, and that kind of thing works when the wrestling team or the baby faces it doesn't work as well when they're the heel because yeah who's going to believe that the two powerful guys are really being taken down by them the other thing too to me in regards to this contest was is it just generally seemed like bradshaw was disinterested in being in a tag team still at this point yeah i i don't know if that was i don't know if it was necessarily that as much but yeah it it did seem like he was going through the motions regardless of what the wrinkling was for. I believe, and once again, I refer you to JD here. It is his match, to, his line to describe the match here, he puts it at two stars, is it was the usual formula with no bells or whistles. And that's pretty much accurate to the match itself. This was four, this was four guys, more or less, as you mentioned, going through the motions and not really doing anything of any kind of relevance in regards to the match itself. Yeah, that, I really can't word it any, any differently than that. I mean, it's a formula because the formula works, but the formula really only works if you've got an audience that's engaged with it and if everybody's working hard, and we didn't get that here. Uh, one thing that did stand out to me was Bradshaw powerbombing the absolute bejesus out of Shelton at one point. That to me was the that to me was the most impressive spot in this entire contest. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, Charlie Haas's Hulk Hogan safe made me chuckle as well, even though it probably wasn't meant to. Yeah, yeah, I don't think this was supposed to be the comedy match of the evening. I think we already had that. <laughs> it made me chuckle seeing Charlie say with a leg drop, brother. What can I say? <laughs> So now the people that the crowd actually cares about. 
and specifically a certain arrival at the show in one Bill Goldberg. I didn't mention this intentionally because it wasn't part of the actual match results. We will talk more about Goldberg a little bit later on in the show because he does play a factor, but not the factor in the finish to the main event. Goldberg makes his way down to ringside here. Paul Heyman comes out to, well, more or less have a coronary and, and is interrupted once he starts yelling at Goldberg that Goldberg doesn't need to be there by Brock Lesnar coming down to yell at Goldberg for being there. Some language is, to- is tossed around, some verbiage is used, and the magic word of the evening is spoken when Lesnar calls Goldberg a bitch. Goldberg proceeds to jump the barricade, get into the ring, and Lesnar gets the offense, gets the initial offensive attack with a double leg taking him into the corner. He once again goes for an F5, similar to what he did to Goldberg at Royal Rumble 2004. Goldberg counters out by landing on his feet, delivers a knee to Lesnar's midsection, and hits the jackhammer slam to put Lesnar down on the canvas before security, security. It's called to ringside by Heyman, and Goldberg is arrested and taken out of the building to return later. I mean, to be removed from the building. Yeah, I I like this statement a lot, actually. It it, it was real simple, real to the point. It it didn't drag. Heyman comes out, hey, I don't care if you have a ticket, you stay behind that guardrail, you're a fan, you you have no right to hop the guardrail. Lesnar comes out, goes Goldberg, say that three times fast, into hopping the guardrail and getting involved. Yeah, security comes out and takes the guy who's there as a fan away. I think the statement was very well done. It gave you that sense that, okay, Goldberg's a guy that can beat Brock Lesnar. Got a little taste of what the WrestleMania match should have been, in my opinion. I, I think the statement was a lot better than their match at WrestleMania that year. Uh, can I just point out the sad fact that here it is, 2017, and these two have just had another match at WrestleMania? You know, that, that, their second match of WrestleMania was a lot better than the first one. Okay, that's fair. But at the same time, the first match at WrestleMania, even though it was like 11 minutes long, they didn't do anything for like the first six. Yeah, so, so the only reason anybody remembers their first match at WrestleMania was because the crowd, yeah, turned against them before the bell ever rang. And then uh, Steve Austin proceeded to stun them both right out of the World Wrestling Entertainment. See, it doesn't, yeah, okay. it doesn't pull off the tongue as smoothly as it does when it was World Wrestling Federation. No, it really doesn't. But, but let, let's be honest here, though. If you're Goldberg and, and Brock Lesnar, and I'm not going to defend their horrible performance in WrestleMania 20, but if the crowd has already turned against both of you before the match has started, are you really going to put on a show for them? They've really, uh, already, made up their, they've really already made up their minds. Yeah, like, I'm not condoning them having that bad a match, but I don't blame them for phoning it in either. Uh, at that point, both of them were probably looking at each other like, why bother? Mm-hmm. Just one last paycheck for both of them, honestly. Um, to somebody that this wasn't just one last paycheck for, Lesnar is still in the ring after being taken down with a jackhammer, selling this longer than anything he has in the last two years in the WWE. When Hardcore Holly's music hits, and Brock Lesnar runs from Hardcore Holly. What are phrases you would never hear in 2017 for 600, Alex? Yeah, but you know what, though? It made sense with what was going on at the time. That Holly recently come back from the injury that 
that what happened in the match against Brock Lesnar. They just had the match at the Royal Rumble the month before. Paulie still really hasn't gotten his revenge. He's still shooting for that revenge. And Brock got a match later on tonight. Why is he going to stick around with a guy who's pissed off and trying to take a cut off? I mean, yeah, you're not going to say that for even 2017, but it made perfect sense for 2004. It's funny that you mentioned Hardcore Holly in shooting in that particular sentence there because of the actual backstory in the match. You mentioned the fact that Holly was out for revenge after Lesnar injured him. This was after Holly had sandbagged Lesnar. Absolutely. Uh, For those of you who don't know, in this regard here, sandbagging means to not work with your opponent in the particular context of a move. In this instance, it was, I believe Lesnar was going for the double powerbomb. Holly sandbagged him, and Lesnar proceeded to break his neck with a powerbomb. Yeah, I I didn't say the injury was Lesnar's fault. I'm just saying, based on the storyline that was going on and everything that happened leading up to it, it makes perfect sense. Oh, no, I agree. I agree. I'm just giving context, that's all. And now that Hardcore Holly's in the ring, how do you like him now? Rhino's music hits, and we get the match that was set up on Sunday Night Heat because, well, like I said, they didn't really plan this show out particularly well. The match itself actually isn't bad. Again, I would use the phrase perfectly acceptable wrestling. The problem is, is that they spend more or less 10 minutes of Rhino beating the crap out of Hardcore Holly just for Holly to fluke his way out with a one-hit quit with the finish with the Alabama Slam. I think I like this match a little bit more than you did. Uh, of course, I'm biased because I've worked shows with Rhino, and I, I love working with the dude. So I'm, I'm kind of biased, but I get to see Rhino work for 10 minutes. I'm happy. Uh, I like Rhino, too, but at the same time here, it's not like I'm actually I'm asking for them to go out and work 10 minutes of Rhino dominating the match and then having Holly hit one, basically what amounts to one move for the finish. I mean, this is this is what would be, we fans these days would complain about being seen or Roman booking, though, is it not? Keith, even I, I get where you're going going with that, but even even Cena and Roman will get a little bit more offense than what Hardcore Holly got here too. Yeah, I actually kind of made made your point for you, I think, by saying that. But I actually liked Rhino. I liked Rhino in this time. Uh, Rhino was just coming off of an impressive run back in 2003 when he came back from his next surgery. I seem to remember a four-way for the U.S. title at SummerSlam in 2003 between Tajiri, Rhino, Benoit, Eddie. That was fantastic here. And Rhino still had a lot to give to the company at this point here. He would be gone from the company, I believe, by WrestleMania the following year after the incident with his, wife in the ho- with his ex-wife in the hotel, if memory serves. That being said, at this point here, I believe that there was still some speculation possibility for the WWE that they may have intended to do more with Rhino down the road. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't remember what the plans were at the time, but I remember just watching a fan and currently thinking he could be in the U.S. title picture yeah, pretty, on a pretty regular basis without, without an issue. And you could slot him in, especially once JBL won the belt, you could start slot him in, maybe get him a main event here and there. Yeah, just freshen the skin up a little bit. But, yeah, I don't remember what the exact plans were at that point. I mean, him and Big Show had some entertaining matches in the hardcore division back in 2001. Why not have him work with Big Show over the, uh, over the U.S. title here on SmackDown? I mean, other than the fact that they're both heels. Yeah, but Ryan Oak and another guy, though, could be equally turned babyface without trying too hard. 
Go yeah. you could do it. You could do whatever. You could do whatever. Well, and apparently Big Show had two, considering he changed about eighty-four times in eighteen huh. years. But uh, actually, I think Big Show's changed facial alignments eighty-four times since we started this podcast. Fifty-three episodes ago, or tonight? Tonight. I figure I'd clarify that. One hundred percent tonight. <laughs> Yeah, the match itself isn't bad. It's just it's nothing to write home about. As I said at, at, at the uh, beginning of my review for the match here, perfectly acceptable wrestling. I, I disagree with the way that the booking of the layout of the match was done, though, just because I don't like the whole format where one guy dominates the offense, the other guy hits one move and wins the match. It, it's always bothered me. Yeah, this is one if we were some other podcast, we would find out who the, we would say who the agent was and do a bad impression of them, but... Well, you know. <laughs> Something to wrestle with. Fridays. On Spotify. And mostly because I just blanked on MLW Radio. I don't know why I blanked on that. Anywho. I'm actually, I'm actually surprised you, you plugged it by name, but there you go. Oh, no. We, we blatantly ripped them off on the show before. It's, we plugged them every episode. Me and Patrick are both big fans of something to wrestle with. Uh, so, so am I. So am I. I actually bought a bought a shirt. So we'll talk about your phone call later. Let's go ahead and move on to the next <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. All right. The next contest scheduled for one fall. One fall is the cruiserweight title match as Rey Mysterio Jr. defends for the. Second time on pay-per-view, I believe, after having won it in December of 03, if memory serves, because I remember Tajiri was the champion back around No Mercy, so it would have been around December-ish. Yeah, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe it was like tape December 30th there, January 2nd, something like that. I, remember, like I think I was reviewing SmackDown at that point. I think I remember making a comment of that would be the match of the year if it was actually recorded this year, but... He defends against the now no longer associated with Uncle Eddie Chavo Guerrero Jr. Ray has boxer Jorge Paez in his corner. I don't follow boxing. I have no clue who the hell that is. Chavo has his father in his corner, better known to WWE fans as Chavo Classic. Okay, well, I, I did follow boxing at the point. Jorge Paez was a very good fighter. Uh, I guess the best way to, to describe him for... Uh, today, sports fans, uh, kind of a Conor McGregor, Nick Diaz type of personality where he could really annoy the hell out of you real quick. So this actually kind of made Ray the heel in my eyes just from being a boxing fan and hating Jorge Payas with a freaking passion. But So you're saying Oscar De La Hoya, he wasn't? No. Very, very, very good, very talented fighter. Loved watching his fight. Rooted for him to get knocked out every single time he fought. Hated the guy. It definitely would fit in with the, the uh, Conor McGregor description, then. He's one of those guys that you love to hate. All right. 17 minutes for the Cruiserweights. You know, I'd be impressed if this pay-per-view didn't run at least 15 minutes short anyway. Now, maybe I'm, maybe I've, uh, maybe I just misinterpreted what I was watching though. But it, did it seem to you 
that the crowd was really into the first five minutes or so of the match. And then once Paez got kicked out for punching out Chavo Classic, they really died down and didn't really come back up. Was it just me or? No, I would agree with that assessment. I think the only thing that they really got into it, invested in that, I think the only thing that they really got invested in towards the latter stages of the matches was, was, was when Ray was crawling for the ropes when Chavo converted that roll through into the half crab. Um, yeah, it's really kind of a shame that that was the reaction, too. I love this match. I thought this was fantastic. The heat for the finish is kind of non-existent, specifically off of... I mentioned the fact that uh, Chavo picks up the win here when I get the results here. Chavo picks up the win with a roll-up and a tight, and a tight assist at 17:22. What I did not mention in that particular description of the finish is that Rey Mysterio had gone up top, assumingly for the non-springboard variation of the West Coast pop, when... Chavo Classic pushed Ray off into a hot shot onto the top rope, and then Chavo got the roll-up that he then pulled the tights on for the finish. Go ahead. Yeah, I I think that's part of the reason there was really no heat for the finish. Uh, One, I think everybody forgot Chavo Sr. was there, but he pulled the punch from Paez for like 12 minutes at that point. And two, supposedly that was the Rican Pyak would get ring fight anyway, which to prevent that very thing from happening. So I think it was just the crowd going, ah, oh, great, here we go. I just, I don't, I've never been a big fan of Chavo in the ring. I think he's doing phenomenal work as an agent for Lucha Underground. I think that, I think that character-wise, uh, the stuff that him and Eddie did as Los Guerreros was fantastic. I think Eddie carried the, I think Eddie carried the Los Guerreros tag team inside of, in terms of the in-ring content. And I feel like while both of these members were, were part of what would be described as the SmackDown 6, which was still, excuse me, which was still a thing at this particular point, although Edge was, I believe, out with injury, would not return until Backlash 04 on Raw, but... Um, in regards to the SmackDown 6, I would say that it's pretty clear to me that Chavo was probably the worst of the six when it came to the in-ring content. Yeah, uh, at, at the time, at least, I preferred Chavo to Edge, but I would definitely put Chavo in the bottom half of that, of that kick-man group. Uh, I, that's not a knock on Chavo at all, in my opinion. I, I enjoy Chavo working the ring, actually. So we're finally disagreeing. I feel better now. That's fair. Um... So do you want to use this as an opportunity to talk about the cluster fudge sickle that was the Cruiserweight Open at WrestleMania? Because that's what this segued into. You know, I remember when that, when that was happening, we were talking about the card in general at, at work, at, at my job at that point. And that was, aside from the main event, that was the measure we were talking about. Oh, this could be fantastic. They got this stuff in a way that can't go less than half an hour. All, the, all that great talent. And then it went like, I think nine minutes and something might have just topped the ten minute mark. I remember going to the work the next day. I remember going to the work the next day. My manager going, yeah, my wife got dinner with Grady, and I said, well, I'll be in after this match. This match could go an hour, and then like ten minutes later, I'm coming in the kitchen. She go, that wasn't an hour. I went, no, it wasn't. That's what she said. Oh God. Thank you, Michael Scott. <laughs> We, we, we find multiple sources to rip off here on Wrestling Unwrapped. Um, anyways, no, it's just a colossal disappointment here, and it would end up leading to the death of division. The death of the division just, what, 
six, eight months later? Or, no, wait, no, it was 2006, not 2004. My mistake. Uh, 2007, actually. Hornswoggle, Cruiserweight Champion, killed it. Are we sure Jacqueline Moore, Cruiserweight Champion, in 2004 didn't do it? Yeah, but it, recovered, it recovered quite a bit with uh, Gregory Helms having it for 13 months. Gregory Helms. Great shade. Gregory Shane. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought I thought Holmgren did a lot to reestablish it, and six months after that, they killed it. Well, because didn't it go back to Chavo and then to Hornswoggle from Chavo, if memory serves? Hornswoggle won some kind of multi-person cluster, but he ended up being in the ring when the bell rang, even though he wasn't part of the match, and then he got the pin. Yeah, I remember that. It was like at the Great American Bash in 2007, if memory serves. Yeah, I, I don't remember who the champion was going into that. I, I don't care enough to look it up. I've been trying to block that out of my mind. Agreed. The less we think about cruiserweight uh, champion Hornswoggle, probably the better. Not a knock on Quoggle. Enjoy, enjoy, the, guy, enjoy the guy's character. He, yeah, I, I've, seen him, I've seen him work independent show. He funded, he funded independent show. Yeah, I didn't yeah, like that gimmick. Didn't like the fact that he had to kill the division with him. Um, did it, did definitely enjoy, I definitely do enjoy his work is the big deal, uh, specifically in Shakara. I feel like it works for him. Um, well, we talked about the Cruiserweight division here. Now that the Cruiserweight division is back in the WWE, is, is there anybody from this era in the Cruiserweight division that you think would be able to survive in the modern-day WWE's Cruiserweight division? I feel like James Gibson and Jamie Noble could probably still go. Yeah, I, I think Jamie Noble, if he, if he wanted to, could still go, absolutely. Uh, the question I, is... I, 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 would, I would like... Yeah, depending on how his neck's doing, I would say Rey Mysterio, depending on how he, on how his knees are doing. Uh, Paul London can, uh, could actually still bring it as well. I think London could yeah could do fairly well in this division right now. Uh, I think London's too advisory advisatory towards their uh, wellness policy for that to ever happen though. I, I wouldn't well, I, be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised to see Ray back in the WWE at some point. And I feel like him working with some of these younger cruiserweights might not be the worst idea in order to get the crowd more invested in the cruiserweight division. Yeah, I would kind of like to see uh, Mysterio against Takawa, quite honestly. I think that would be fun. Mysterio and who? Akira Takawa. Ah, uh, I would actually be interested to see Mysterio take on Kalisto because I feel like a match with uh, Mysterio could help make Kalisto as an in-ring talent. Because Kalisto has all the talent in the world. He just can't cut a promo to save his life. But having the rub from somebody like Mysterio to put him over would definitely do wonders for Kalisto, in my opinion. Because that, that would be a lot of fun as well. Uh, honestly, I think Mysterio and Kendrick could be fun, too. I don't think that, I don't know if they've ever worked together. Uh, the question would be would their paths have crossed anywhere else. And uh, honestly, outside of maybe an independent here or there along the way, probably not. Definitely not on any kind of mainstream promotions radar. Yeah, I mean they've been in the, they were in WWE together for a while, and I don't think they ever. They, I don't think they ever booked that match. I don't think they were on the same brand in the WWE when they were in there together. Because I want to say Ray was on SmackDown, and then Kendrick was on Raw when Kendrick got his release from the W. Or, 
Yeah, Kendrick was on Raw when he. No, he was on SmackDown when he got it. They might have been. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they ever pulled the trigger on that match. I would have loved to have seen that. Mm. All right. With that being said, we move on. It is a triple threat where the winner goes on to WrestleMania 20 to take on whomever the WWE champion is. It is widely insinuated by the announcers that they feel it's going to be Brock Lesnar. Neither here nor there. Your participants are the U.S. champion, the Big Show, because why should that belt be dis- why should that belt be defended? Kurt Angle and John Cena. Okay, before we before we discuss the match itself, uh, the U.S. champion being involved in a match like this does make sense. Theoretically, the U.S. champion is supposed to be the number one contender to that brand's world title. So why would he not be in a one number one contender match? I, I get what you're saying. I would prefer the both to be defended, too, but it makes sense for him to be involved in this. Well, my thought process to it was the fact that this card was so short on time anyway, you could have had a big show title defense in the undercard, and you could have done Angle versus Cena for the number one contendership. But who would have, who would have gotten the U.S. title shot? Um, I mean, that, that's a good question. I can't lie. Off the top of my head, I don't remember the SmackDown 2004 roster, but because uh, yeah, Benoit was already over to Raw by this point because he was getting ready to challenge for the title at WrestleMania 20, and Benoit was the one that was definitely in the uh, the other half of the push with uh, with Cena going towards Lesnar and Big Show towards the end of 2003 into 2004 before he won the Royal Rumble. So that's a good question. All right. Thank you. Uh, do you want to discuss Cena's promo before the match? His his rap. I use that air again. Air quotes on an audio podcast. I mean, there's not really much to say about it. Uh, here, here's what I can say about Cena's rap character as a whole. It's what got him over initially. Because, yeah, let's be honest, if that gimmick doesn't take off, he probably doesn't even have a job at this point, much less become what he becomes. But in a, in a lot of ways, a lot of the backlash he still gets is still based off of the people that hated this gimmick. I, I, he's never been able to, to completely move past this, I don't think. You see, I, I think, think that... Well, you mentioned that the backlash comes from the people that hated this gimmick. I would say it's equally from the people that love this gimmick so much that they aren't willing to accept what his character has become. Uh, there's, there's an argument for that. I can see that. Okay, you were saying continue. No, that was pretty much my point. All right. Um, the match itself here, actually pretty entertaining as far as, uh, it's it's your standard triple threat fair. Two guys battle on the ring while one's taking a, a siesta for most of it. There are a couple interspersed spots where everybody gets involved with everybody, but again, traditional triple threat fair here. Um, are you okay with the triple threat formula of two men battle while one's on the floor, or would you prefer more of all three people being involved against each other? I would, pref- I would prefer more of all three guys against each other. If I feel like if you have to rely on one guy being on the floor and two guys fighting that much in the match, you may as well just focus one-on-one matches to begin with, done like a gauntlet-type thing or a round-robin thing or something instead. I've, I've always kind of felt that. Uh, the one thing I did like about this particular one, yeah, it's become just kind of standard practice, that triple threat matches for no DQ. And here you've got a referee who's actually enforcing the rule. Big Show at one point had, 
you know, choking Kane in the corner with a boot, and you're getting the five count from referee Nick Patrick. I, I thought that was actually a nice little touch that, hey, there are rules in this thing. You still got to actually win. You don't need to try to win the match within the context of a normal wrestling match. And that's one thing I think it is missing from the current triple threat matches. Line from JD's review here. Cena hits the FU on Big Show. Really should have saved that for WrestleMania. They had already done this particular spot at both the Tribute to the Troops as well as Survivor Series 2003. I think this is one of those instances where rare they may be that I disagree with JD. I'm perfectly okay with them using that spot in this match. Your thoughts? If he had never done it before, then I would have hit it for WrestleMania, but we've already seen it. Why does it matter? That's kind of where I was going with that as well. We've seen, we've already seen Cena hit uh, Big Show with an FU at uh, Survivor Series, and then, as I mentioned, it has on tribute to the troops as well. The uh, the first edition, if I'm not mistaken, aired at the end of 2003. Yeah, uh, yeah. In that in that context, I don't I don't have any problem with that. Um, let's go to the finish here with. The angle, the angle slam on Big Show, taking him out of the ring and taking advantage of the clipped knee of Cena that Show had just clipped to apply the grapevine ankle lock for the, for the submission victory. Okay, I actually, when I was watching this, I actually did not remember that that was the finish. So I actually kind of threw me off that Cena tapped out with the whole never give up, yeah, Hufflepuff respect deal. Uh, honestly, I I think you could actually play that off in a few with Cena today when he doesn't ever give up things. It's somebody you're building up at Cahill, just showing that click on. I thought you said you never give up. Here you are giving up. I'm going to make you give up now. And I, well, I think they should actually use that in a, cur- in a current storyline with them. Uh, you could also make that argument as well. You could go back to uh, No Mercy 2003 where Angle tapped him out as well. Yes. And in my opinion, one of the matches that helped make Cena as an in-ring performer in the WWE was that No Mercy 2003 match against Kurt Angle. Like, I actually, I actually had a feeling Cena was going to be a big star when he got the match with Brock, Brock Lesnar backlash in 2003. And I know that show was in Boston, and that played a lot into it. But that was the first time that you really call crowd react really well to Cena. And, and the first time it really seemed like Cena had a future in the business. Um, WrestleMania 19 and Backlash 2003 were two of the very first pay-per-views I ordered when I got back into wrestling. I don't regret WrestleMania 19. Backlash 2003 is a conversation for a different show. That being said, I I have the opinion that I didn't think Cena was ready at that point for the match against Lesnar. I didn't buy Cena as a legitimate threat to Lesnar at all. Going into the match, I would agree with you, but I think the match itself, match, that match itself is where I started turning the corner on Cena and thinking this could be a major guy down the line. I, I don't see it, but um, to me, I think the Taker match at Vengeance, and then, a, was it Vengeance or three? Or, I want to say it was Vengeance. Yeah. The Taker match at Vengeance in 03, and then the Angle match in No Mercy 03 is where I was solidified on the Cena character. Okay, I, I caught a little bit before you did, apparently, then. Either, either way, 2003 would seen a breakout year. We're agreed on that part. Uh, let's talk about the fact that they kind of used this to tease 
that with Lesnar being the current heavyweight champion there, that they're going to go to Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar 2 for WrestleMania 20. Can you imagine how, this, how uh, the landscape of the WWE would have been different had we actually gotten that contest instead of WrestleMania 20? That's actually a very good question. Uh, I mean, do we assume that Lesnar is still leaving after WrestleMania 20 in that scenario, or do we think that maybe if he'd work in Angle instead of Goldberg that he might stick around? See, I'm thinking that if he's, back, he's programmed back with his pal Angle, they, that he might be more willing to consider sticking around on at least a somewhat part, on at least a somewhat regular basis, much the same way of the schedule that Ross was working around this time frame, where he'd come in for a couple of months and then disappear, come in for a couple of months and disappear. I think similar to the schedule, what works nowadays will work for him back then as well. Yeah, I would really, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think that's, I, I think that's the key there. I think if if Bluntner's going to leave anyway, there's not much difference aside from maybe who got the belt at any given point. But if Bluntner sticks around, that does that, change a huge dynamic. Because I feel like if Bluntner's not leaving, Eddie doesn't get the belt here. Okay, yeah, supposedly it was a very last-minute thing that about Bluntner leaving. They apparently didn't know that until later in the day. If you listen to some, if you listen, if you listen to some people that were working at the company at the time, at any point, at any rate, so I feel like this is a Bruce Pritchard reference of an episode of this podcast I haven't gotten to yet. That's actually not a Bruce, that's actually not a Bruce Pritchard reference, but I have heard that from some people within the company that yeah, that we didn't know he was leaving until like the week of. Because I remember he left because he wanted to try out for the Vikings, and then he was in the motorcycle accident before he tried out for the Vikings, if memory serves. Uh, I, you may be right. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to think of the time frame off the top of my head, and I cannot remember when that when that motorcycle accident was. All right, we'll talk more about where this leads after we discuss the next match. Because I mean, we already mentioned the fact that Eddie beat Lesnar to win the title, which leads to Eddie and Kurt at WrestleMania 20. In my opinion, probably the second or third best match on that show. Um. I'm personally of the opinion, I mean, the triple threat is number one in my opinion, and it is still, in my opinion, in the top five for WrestleMania main events of all time. Even though it doesn't technically exist anymore, but go ahead. Yeah. To me, I would put Eddie and Kurt right up there with Jericho Christian as the second best match. I would put that, I would put it above Jericho and Christian, although I do like that match a lot. I think Jericho Christian, and especially with the story that gets told after the match for Jericho and Christian, gives it a little bit of an edge to me. Not to mention, and we've talked about this many times on the show, I am an admitted Jericho Mark. Oh, Jericho, Jericho still yeah, can still go in the ring. If we're talking about Jericho going to New Japan for a one shot in freaking January, like it, like it, like this match should be WrestleMania instead. Let's, you know, let's be honest here. Uh, New Japan reference on this show, Patrick will love that. <laughs> it just, New Japan makes his blood boil sometimes. It's funny to me. I'm actually, I don't subscribe to New Japan World. Uh, it's not something that I have any interest in. I, it's not my style of company. I don't. I don't feel like I would use it, and especially given the fact that there's no actual app availability for it, so I'd have to watch on my computer or on my tablet. I wouldn't be able to watch on my screen. That being said, the Omega Jericho match is one that I am going to go out of my way to see. 
Yeah, you know, they do have the thing called HDMI cable that you can run from your computer to your TV and watch it on your screen that way, just just, for, just FYI. Uh, and if my netbook had an HDMI port, I'd totally be up for doing that. Well, that's your problem. <laughs> Let's talk main event, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. The reason we're here tonight, as we mentioned the show is in honor of the late, great Eddie Eduardo Gordy Guerrero Lenas, as this is... Eddie Guerrero defeats Brock Lesnar via pinfall frog splash at 30 minutes and 5 seconds to win the SmackDown slash WWE Heavyweight Championship. You know, we talk about Matches of the Year contenders a lot, and, and especially as somebody like yourself who used to review these shows on a regular basis, so I'm sure when you guys did the TSM year interviews, uh, the smartmarks.com, if you guys want to take the opportunity to check out archive.org, you can find a lot of Jayhawk's work there. It's... Uh, from Jayhawk's Beak was the column's title, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, we talk about match of the year contenders here. I, I think this one would have had to have been up there, if not for being topped a month later at WrestleMania with that triple threat. Yeah, I definitely think this one, this one up there. It's one of my favorite matches from 2004. For fundamental reasons, it's one of my it's one of my favorite ever. Although, if I yeah, looking at it objectively. And not looking at that top ten or top fifteen all time, you're currently looking at a very good match with the with you know, tell a great story and with the result that pretty much everybody was hoping for. Let's talk about the story that it tells here in regards to Eddie getting his first heavyweight title. Um, I want an honest answer here. Did you ever think you would see the day that Eddie Guerrero would hold a WWE heavyweight title? Because I'll be honest with you, I did not. It, it, it's really weird to me. You ask me that question because I'm, I, when I think back, when I think back on, especially leading up to this match, Eddie Guerrero got so incredibly hot in 2003 during the lie cheat deal gimmick that everybody was pretty much saying this has to be, this almost has to be the match. This almost has to be the next, the next champion. But it just, yeah, Eddie is not the typical Vince McMahon guy. He's not the big six foot eight, three hundred pound bodybuilder type guy that that Vince loves. I mean, obviously Lesnar's a little bit shorter than that, but he's still the big muscular guy. That yeah, that's why he got the yeah he got the ball as quickly as he did. I mean, clearly Eddie had the talent to do it, and I clearly ordered this pay per view live, hoping that he would do it. And if he got it, I didn't want to say I missed it because I because of how I thought the show was going to get booked. But I really went into the thinking that Lesnar was going to keep the belt somehow, and, were, and that it was going to be Lesnar and Goldberg for the belt at WrestleMania, which I should have known better. But I was of the opinion that I didn't think Eddie was ever going to see a heavyweight title in the WWE. And the reason I say that is because it's something that you just mentioned, that guys Eddie's size didn't win heavyweight titles in Vince McMahon's WWF slash E. The only person at close to Eddie's size that won a title in the WWF slash E was Shawn Michaels. And Michaels had the in with Vince McMahon due to his relationship with Vince and everything going on backstage in that time frame with the click with Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, X-Pac, and depending on who you do and don't believe, just incredible. Slash and Triple H, of course. 
So Triple H, or not Triple H, Shawn Michaels had this backing support for him in order to give him that opportunity. I don't know that that backing support was there for Eddie. And knowing what Vince McMahon's traditional view of a sports, of a sports entertainment superstar was, your Hogan's, your Austin's, your... Uh, your Lesnar's in this particular instance, as is the case here in February 2004. I didn't see Eddie getting a shot with a run at the big belt. I'm glad to have been wrong. All right, so I'm about to ask a very difficult question. I've got to figure out how to phrase this so that it doesn't come off offensive. Do you think Eddie's run with the title contributed to his demise? Uh, no, I, I really I, – I had to think about it for a second, but I really don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I do think that the pressure got to him a little bit to try to be that draw, and I think that's why he dropped the belt to JBL quickly as he did. But currently, there was a lot uh, – a lot left in that run I felt at the time, and I still feel I still feel that way. Uh, but I mean, Eddie's demons before we ever got to this point are are what led to his demise. I don't think this run had anything to do with it. Uh, I mean, it's it's obviously come out now. Uh, the toxicology reports and everything came out that Eddie died of a heart attack due to an, an enlarged heart from his years of using steroids and his years of abusing medications and alcohol. And we're not going to sit here and we're not going to turn this into an episode about the perils of professional wrestlers because there are bad things that come with any sport, and whether people choose to partake in them or not is of their, is of their business. That being said, it's a case where Eddie's past caught up with him in the long run. I also feel like Eddie was putting a lot of pressure on himself around this time as well, and that added stress didn't do him any favors either, though. Yeah, but we got, the other thing you got to factor in, though, is he drops the ball to JBL in June. He passed away in November of, 2005, of 2005. Yeah, I mean, over a year passed between the time he drops the belt and the time he actually passes away. I would think if this run contributed that heavily to it, and I, and I agree with you, he put a lot of pressure on himself, but I think if, if that was part of, part of what led to his demise, he wouldn't have made it as long as he did afterwards. Uh, that actually ties into what I'm about to say next here. So the rumor is, is that Eddie was supposed to get the belt back two nights, before he, two nights after he would pass away. The rumor was is that Eddie was supposed to take the title off of Batista on an episode of SmackDown where Eddie would turn full-on heel when taking the title off of Batista after they had what would be Eddie's final pay-per-view match at No Mercy in 2005. My question to you is this. Given the fact that, with the rumors being that Eddie was supposed to get the belt back there, do you think maybe some of the stress from when he was originally champion might have contributed towards any kind of, per- perhaps, issues that he may have had that, uh, that afternoon? Hey, has it ever been confirmed that that was a that was that was the actual plan though? I've heard um, it both ways. I've heard I've heard that story too, and I've heard I I think I might have even been Bruce Prichard. I could be wrong. I know several people have said that no, that wasn't the plan at all. I think Stephanie McMahon even said what that wasn't the plan at one point. So I I that's a good question, but I would really need to know if one if that was actually the plan, and two how far out they were thinking with him at the, having the belt. 
before I went, yeah, before I could give you a real answer on that, I, I really can't give you an honest answer without, without knowing all that information. Well, and I think that's enough down talk for this particular episode. I feel like it's time to get back to happier moments in regards to this particular show. Please. All right. Well, that's one of the reasons why we were kind of hesitant to do this show because we knew these topics would have to come up and inevitably based on the fact that the show is being done on the what is the day after the anniversary of his passing. All right, let's get back to the show itself here. Um, Goldberg's involvement in the match. Uh, Cole and Taz make a big deal about it when it happens, but by the time the finish rolls around, it's pretty much forgotten. Do you think that that was the right decision? I, I think that absolutely was the right decision. Uh, honestly, I don't feel Goldberg needed to be come, to come back out and cost Lesnar the match. You already did your statement to build up to the match. That was enough, in my opinion. I, I see why they did it. I get why they did it. I don't. I think if you take that out and do everything else exactly the same, I think I think the match works just as well, if not better. But it's definitely the right decision for that not not to be directly the finish because it, yeah, even if you it gives Goldberg uh, excuse me gives Lesnar the out that he can still say, well, if Goldberg doesn't come out there, I I beat Eddie. But when you show the replay of that victory, it looks like Eddie beat Lesnar without any any outside involvement at all. So I think that was actually the perfect way to handle it. If they had to get Goldberg involved. Well, I, I, I don't know if I would agree with that, given the fact that Lesnar was going for a belt shot on Eddie when Goldberg speared him. Assuming Goldberg doesn't get involved there, Lesnar hits that belt shot, and there's your finish. Well, the referee went down at the time, too. Why wouldn't, yeah, why wouldn't you do the slow crawl to count Eddie kick out anyway? You'd, you'd still have Eddie kick out of that, believably, without Goldberg being involved in that. Well, not to mention, I also enjoy, I, I'm okay with the Goldberg involvement in this match, specifically for the reaction that the kick out that uh, Lesnar got off of the cover by Eddie after Eddie crawled into the cover for the spear. And I like the fact that they let Lesnar kick out of the spear as well when Eddie went for the cover. Yeah, and that was a very well-timed kick out. And you're right, that, cr- that crowd reaction, uh, that, that combination of, all right, this is awesome, this match is continuing, and, oh, crap, Eddie could end up losing the thing anyway, isn't he? That, that combination of uh, that reaction from the crowd really, really hammered everything home. Absolutely here. Let's move on a little bit later on in the contest with the Tornado DDT on the title. Again, air quotes, audio podcast. You know the steal by now. Uh, Brock, clear as day, missed that belt. Yeah, usually when they put things on the DVD or on the network, they will try to edit in a different camera angle to make it look like it like it happened the way it was supposed to. And yeah, there was nothing they could do to save that one. He missed he missed the belt by probably a good foot. I think a lot of that just has to do with disorientation spinning Eddie though, because you just can't necessarily time the way you need Eddie to land out of the spin for the F five in order to be able to time that tornado DDT into the title. Uh, exactly. It, it, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like when you're in a ladder match and you want the ladder to land a certain way. You don't know how the thing's actually going to fall when you go down. Same thing there. You're you're spinning. You're, you're you got your target in mind. I mean, the other thing you got to factor in is when when the, you drop the belt, it doesn't necessarily stay in one spot either. Sometimes get it kind of bounce land on its side and rolls a little bit too. So yeah, it, nothing like that's going to go 100% as planned. So I'm not going to hold either guy responsible for what happens. I was just going to chalk that up to one of those crap happens things, you know? Yeah, but it's, the guys can play on Botchamania, so there you go. 
thoughts on the finish here? Were you surprised that it was as clean as it was with that frog splash? Yeah, honestly, uh, honestly, anything, any finish besides any game to pin after the Goldberg interference was going to be a surprise to me at that point. So yes, it wasn't surprise. But uh, I, like I said, I'm I'm glad that was the way it, that that was the way it happened and that Goldberg's interference didn't directly lead to it. I think that made for a better finish. And I think it made for a better crowd reaction. Comparison made by JD here. I want to get your thoughts on it as we wrap up our discussion for this match here. JD compares it to Flair versus Vader from Starcade '93. By yourself. Uh, I'm gonna sell that one. Honestly, I didn't. I, I I guess the comparison is based on the crowd reaction to Flair winning, as opposed to the crowd reaction to Eddie winning. I I don't get two different two completely different story two completely different dynamics. See, to me, it almost seemed more like a uh, maybe more like a Shawn Michaels versus Sid Vicious kind of thing, where it was the well, I don't know if necessarily younger because Brock was pretty young when he won the heavyweight title, but the the lighter, more athletic wrestler using the opportunities that he would get to try to wear down the bigger power based wrestler, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I see where you're going with that. And again, though, if there's two completely matches, two completely different matches, two completely different stories being told. I yeah, I yeah, I I feel this match. I will compare this match to another match in that sense. I feel like this one stands out on its own, at its own thing. Now, uh, one thing I do want to bring up to you while we are discussing this match, I got a little scoop for you on this one that you may not be aware of. Uh, and this was told to me at a seminar I took from Jimmy Corderas a couple of years ago. Uh, even though, I mean, I know you've seen the clips of Vince McMahon backstage congratulating Eddie on the match and congratulating him on, on you know, doing what he's done. But Vince was actually furious in the back when the match ended. The, uh, the position Brian Hedman was in, there's no way he could have seen both Brock Lesnar's shoulders. Was Corderas the referee of record for this contest? No, Brian Hebner was the referee of record. Okay, so... Cordero did work a couple matches on the show. He would have been backstage, probably close to Gorilla at that point. Right, well, yeah, I'm sure, uh, as Pritchard would say on the... Uh, as Pritchard would say on his show, it was a sellout at the monitor. Yeah. Especially if the boys knew that Eddie was winning the title, they're all going to want to see Eddie's moment. And, it, and I actually, and I actually remember he said that I paid close attention to it. And yeah, there's no way Hebner could have gained both shoulders. He would only seen one shoulder on the angle he was at. So, well, in fairness, Hebner was still kind of groggy from uh, from being hit with Eddie's feet once the uh, when Lesnar delivered the F5 too. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize Brian Hebner was still a, a young referee at that point. He only had about three, two and a half, three years experience at that at that stage. So. Nowadays, he might be coming back. Uh, that, I, that, anything possible, but they've already got more referees than they know what to do with anyway. Well, I, I feel like Brian would be a good addition. I don't think Earl's old behind needs to be out there refereeing still, still but I think Brian still has a lot to contribute. Oh, I'd, I'd love to see Brian Hemner back on the big stage, but I mean, there's a couple of referees in NXT that have been ready for the call for a while, and there's no room for him. So. 
there's one referee in NXT who'd be just as well served as a worker as he would be a referee. Well, now that they've uh, got uh, Jessica Carter a referee, I think there's two. But Well, I think Jessica would have to uh, kind of adjust to the WWE style, whereas I think for as long as he's been around the company now, I think Drake would be ready to go. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, just making a, just making the point though that there are yeah that they are yeah converting workers into referees rather than actually looking for refereeing at this point. So, well, do you think it's because workers have a kind of a unique a unique experience when it comes to being inside of the ring, so that they're able to help the uh, the other guys communicate a little bit better than maybe a standalone referee is? Now, this isn't to, this isn't to take anything away from strictly performance referees here because. And, and I'm going to go on the record in saying this, and this will be the only time you will ever hear me compliment you like this on air. In my, a lot of people who listen to these shows know that I work as the play-by-play voice for Real Action Pro Wrestling, which is a local Ohio-based independent wrestling company. Jared is one of the referees for, this, for the company as well. And in my opinion, and I've said this to other people before, I don't know if I've ever actually said it to you before. In my opinion, you're probably the second best referee in the state of Ohio. Yeah, I thank you very. I thank you very much for that. Uh, I know who you're referring to as number. I think I know who you're referring to as number one anyway. And honestly, I'm surprised he hasn't gotten the call to go down to NXT yet as well. But he's very good. Jake Clemens, I'll, I'll give you a shout out there. But uh, I, I do appreciate that. Well, he's just now starting to get his foot in the door with the WWE too, though. Now that he's working for Evolve. True. So I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised to see Jay going down there eventually. He is the one that I had just ahead of you. Yes. Yeah, I got no problem with that. Jake, a great guy and a great referee. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to be in that company. To be mentioned that same company, honestly. But, but that's the thing right now, though. And WWE not really looking for active referees. They're just as likely to convert a worker that they like, but don't feel going to fit their style for some reason, into being a referee to fill those positions because they have them. Do you think it's possible that the reason Drake was made a referee is because of his body? And specifically the fact that he more specifically than Ambrose does shows the, 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 the scars of his wars? Uh, the scars, I think, are, are, are the key thing to that. I, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know what? Drake does a great job, though. He yeah, turned into a very good referee. I'm glad he's there. And you, you know you're getting something special if he's refereeing the match. So, I, mean, I got no issues with that whatsoever. Uh, to answer your question about if, if maybe because they've been workers before that gives them a, a unique perspective on it, uh, that's probably a very good point, actually. Uh, currently, I, I know a lot of times, you know, a lot of wrestling schools will have guys that aren't quite ready referees first so they can kind of see it you know, from in the ring how some of the guys work as well. Maybe that's maybe it's the thinking kind of in reverse. Well, you've already been a worker, so you, you should have an idea, you know, but you should know how how to position referee being a worker, because you should know what position to get into. It would not surprise me at all if that's their thinking. Just as importantly, too, they're used to having to communicate with other wrestlers during the course of their matches here. You would think that it would be second nature to communicate with the wrestlers as the referee in order to give them their time cues and to get them to relay the information to get from spot to spot to spot. Like, uh, I think that it's been said before when it comes to the NXT women's matches that some of those matches were put together entirely in advance and it was the referee's job to communicate the spots to the women in NXT. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm not down there, but that wouldn't surprise me in the least. All right, do we have anything else to add on this particular show? Or are we ready to go into the big finish? 
I think we're ready to go in the big finish. It's getting late, so we've got to get up in the morning. So. All right, let's go ahead and do this here. For those of you who are new to the episode, or those of you it has been a while since you've listened, because I know Jayhawk's brought in a few people to listen before, the big finish consists of our best and our worst match, our cash and our trash, and our overall show rating. We'll start with the good for this particular show, and we'll make it an easy one to start with. What's your best match for this show? Eddie and Brock Lesnar, no question. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much else to say about it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt here to me that it has to be Eddie and Brock. Um, just because of the way that they were able to work together, the story that they were able to tell, and the fact that despite the fact that they won a half an hour, they had that crowd in the palm of their hand for pretty much the entirety of that 30 minutes gives credit to, A, how good Brock really was back then that he doesn't get the credit for, and B, how great Eddie was. Uh, absolutely, and I, and the thing is, a lot of people are probably going to think, well, match won 30 minutes, because that's why you're saying that. And I, it, it's true that a lot of the truly great matches are longer matches, but longer matches are also a lot easier to be really bad if they fall apart. Okay, if you have a great 30-minute match, you've got to give a lot of credit to everybody involved. <clears throat> All right, let's hit the flip side of that now. What's your worst match from No Way Out 2004? Uh, there are definitely a, a number of a number of candidates here. Uh, just based, like I, said, I'm, I'm, I don't want to knock the match being it got over in the building, but I I have to give it to Noble and Nidia. It's just it's not my it's not what I want out of my wrestling. Uh, I I compared it to kind of Joey Ryan earlier. I love Joey Ryan's work as a whole. I hate the U Pornplex with a freaking passion. I hate that move. I hate that every time you get somebody got to tag me in a video like eight times. Hey, have you seen this? <coughs> That's how I kind of feel with this match here. I love Jamie Noble, but I feel I feel like this match is the U porn plex the Jamie Noble match. I just, I don't like this I don't like this type of match, especially if I got to pay thirty nine ninety nine or whatever one cut the time to see it. I, I wonder if Nidia would pull up and the references one. Never mind. <sighs> I'm actually going to go with the opener as my least favorite match on this show. And the reason I'm going to go with the opener is because while I understood the story that they were telling, I wasn't invested enough to care. I did not care for the Bashams as a tag team. I enjoyed their work as individuals in OVW. I thought that Doug Basham as a singles wrestler and Danny Basham as the damager in uh, OVW were, were a lot better than their run as a tag team in the WWE. I feel like... Shaniqua adds nothing. Scotty Tuati, in my opinion, is underrated. Rikishi, on the other hand, in my opinion, is overrated. I, I never got the appeal for Rikishi. And all things considered here, they told a basic story. They had a basic match to get through to get to it. And the crowd, more or less, didn't care. So I'm going to go with the yeah, open concept here. Yeah, I, I was debating throwing that one in there as well, but that... Yeah, I'm, I was just a lot less offended by that one than, no, than Noble and Nidia. I think the fact that Noble and Nidia runs for about half as long as the opener does kind of gives it an advantage in my eyes as well. Yeah, also fair, also fair but when I was watching that match, I, I had to stop watching that. I had to be like eight, eight, ten minutes. I saw 426 and went, Really? All right, let's move on here and get to your cash for the show. 
It doesn't necessarily have to be a match. It can. It can be a moment. It can be something backstage. It can be something that you feel would be encapsulated in the history of professional wrestling. It's got to be Eddie Guerrero's uh, celebration to me. That bell ring, he, that bell ring, he grabs that bell. He's immediately jumping in the crowd. He's celebrating with Mondo. He's celebrating with his mom. He's celebrating with just random fans in the crowd. And it, it, I, I got goosebumps watching it, watching that show again this weekend, and, and that's something very rare for me, especially on the second or third viewing. Uh, Eddie, the smile on Eddie's face as he's dragged out of the crowd by the security. Yeah, that that ear to ear grin on Eddie's face as they're pulling him back from the fans. You could tell there was nothing worked about that grin. That was a that was a man in his absolute comfort celebrating with he with what he felt were his people. Yeah, and, and think about how long he fought to get to that point. Uh, the the demons he had to fight to get to that point. People forget that he actually you know fired in two thousand one from WWF at the time, and came back on a basically a probationary basis. Okay, if you screw, if you we'll give you a shot, but if you screw up once, you're gone. Yeah, so and the fact that he even got got to that spot, got back in the company in the first place, and within two years coming back in the company, he's the guy. I mean, he, had, he had to feel vindicated in a lot of ways as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, drunk driving in July of 2001? I don't know if it was drunk driving in 2001 specifically. Uh, I have, the, the one episode I haven't heard of Pritchard Podcast is the Radical in the WWE, so I'd have to probably listen to that for sure. It was some, it's something alcohol-related, but I don't know if it was drunk driving or if he just showed up backstage messed up or what the case was. If memory serves, because I seem to remember reading this while I was still in high school, because I would have been 16 in 2001, so I, I, I seem to remember reading this while I was in high school. It was something along the lines of he was drunk driving and he ran into a house while he was driving and caused damage. And that's what led to the WWE releasing him in July of 2001. Because yeah, he, was on, he was on WWF television as, re, as recently as April or May of 2001 in the European title situation with Matt Hardy and Christian before he, got his, he, before he was released in July. Yeah, I, can't, I can't remember there being a drunk driving incident when he was still on WCW. He missed a lot of time for that. He kept his job, but he missed a lot of time for that. And it was similar to the story you, you, you described, too. I don't, know if that was, I don't know if you're getting your situations mixed up or if he, that happened twice, but I know it was something alcohol-related. I don't remember if it, was, if it was drunk driving or if it was a backstage deal. I think the WCW one was that he was in a car crash and he got hurt because that was when he was the leader of the LWO, if memory serves. Right. All right. Um, yeah, 100% agree with you in regards to your cashier. It has to be Eddie's celebration. And specifically, if you're watching the DVD version of the show, which is traditionally what this show was based around, the concept was originally based around DVD versions, but since the network became a thing, we decided to expand it to include the network airing of shows as well. The, the DVD version of the show actually features what Jayhawk talked about earlier with uh, Eddie's celebration with uh, Vince McMahon backstage once he got back through the curtain. Now, I have the show on DVD, and I don't know if I've ever seen that celebration. I'll have to try to dig that out. I know for a fact, if it's not on there, it's definitely on, 
It's on one of the Eddie DVDs. Maybe Cheating Death, Stealing Life. I'll have, to, I'll have to check. You know, I don't think I have this show on DVD. I think I bought the I bought the paper. I probably just have the VHS from when I freaking recorded off TV. I don't even have the DVD of it. Come to think of it. All right. How about your trash for this show? Uh, God, there's so much to choose from. I know you're probably expecting me to say no more nitty as much as I brag on it today. Honestly, get Cable and to- as much as I love looking at Toy Wolf, and get that segment off there all completely. It served no purpose. Chavo Guerrero's promo after winning the Cruiserweight title. Yeah, I didn't think that was that bad a promo, but... With just the fact that he... Repeatedly standing in front of a locker room that we in front of a dressing room that we were led to believe was was Eddie's. Repeatedly standing there and calling Eddie an attic. Like, dude, we get it. And that that was the story behind the mat behind Eddie's match, though. And I I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, you're just, you know, they're trying to get the story of Eddie's match hammered oh. home with that. And I agree with that to an extent. And if it were Brock Lesnar having that same promo, I wouldn't have an issue with it because Lesnar did actually use that same promo against Eddie, and he did so in the build-up, and it's used in the hype package for the show right after that Sable Tory segment that you mentioned there. Chavo was moved away from Eddie at this point. Chavo had beaten Ray for the Cruiserweight title. He was involved with Ray for the Cruiserweight title at this point. Chavo's focus should have been on Ray, not Eddie. And then just constantly throwing up the attic thing there, yeah, I understand that Chavo is actually more like a brother and a nephew to Eddie. I get that. I know that it was all storyline purposes here. But at the same time, leave that storyline to the two people running that storyline with Brock and Eddie. I get, I get what you're going with that. Uh, then, I, then again, I'm, I'm so used to pretty much nothing being off limits in wrestling anyway. I don't think it, I don't, really don't even think it registered on me when I was watching that promo. So. I mean, going back and re-watching it today, well, last night into this morning as I did in order to freshen up for tonight's episode here, going back and re-watching it, it just it sat wrong with me. Yeah, I can, I, I, can think of, I, can, I can think of a number of other promos that would get wrong with me if I rewatched them today, and I, that, you know, that, that one, didn't, that one didn't, didn't register. Well, Randy's off the top of my head, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, that one, that one, that one, one of the one I was thinking of, actually. Yeah, completely unnecessary, and I hope whoever wrote that line was fired. All right, let's wrap this thing up with a rating. Scale of 1 to 10, Jayhawk, where are you at? Uh, you, the issue you run into here is that this is a one-match show, but that one match is fantastic. Uh... Because because that one match is as good as it is, I'll go seven out of ten. And, I, and if that match would have been like any other main event, I don't think I'd go anywhere near that high for this show. You know what it is? It isn't even so much the fact that the match is as good as it is. It's what we take out of that match as longtime wrestling fans of who is coming out of that match with the title. Let's say this were. Okay, Einstein being what it was. Let's say Eddie and Chris Benoit switch places here, and this was Chris Benoit's moment. I don't think the show has looked back nearly as significantly. 
The fact that Eddie had the reputation that he had among wrestling fans of being this guy who, despite having so many odds against him, some of them self-created, was able to turn them all around and reach the absolute pinnacle of this business with everybody behind him while he did so makes this show stand out as so special in my memory. I'm reminded of, and I really don't want to bring this up, but I'm going to, I'm reminded of the November 12th edition of Monday Night Raw from 2005. And the sign in the crowd as they were doing the Eddie Tribute Raw of he lied, he cheated, he stole our hearts. Yeah. That's what makes me look back on this show so fondly because whenever you watch Eddie in the ring with that mischievous smile on his face, whenever you see Eddie working with his trademark work ethic, whenever you see Eddie having his backstage promos, specifically the Los Guerreros vignettes with Chavo and that just gleam in his eyes as he's doing something dastardly, that's the Eddie Guerrero I choose to remember. That's the Eddie Guerrero that, despite all of his demons, ended up on top of the world in regards to professional wrestling. And depending on which rumors and innuendo you do and don't believe, was about to be on the top of the wrestling world again when his, when his demise came. I'm with you on this one. I'm, a, I'm at a seven as well. And if the undercard's better, we're talking about an all-time classic pay-per-view here. Yeah. Just because of the was, With the exception of Ray and Chavo, this is one of the worst undercard of, of, uh, currently of that particular era of WWE. I think, the, uh, I think the brand split pay-per-views had a lot to do with that and the fact that they left themselves short on some of the pay-per-views back then. Now they have the talent roster to do the, the split brand pay-per-views. Back then, I don't know that they did. Well, coming off of the demise of WCW, the brand, they really should have had the talent. They did when the brand split started, and for whatever reason, they couldn't maintain that level of talent for any length of time. And the vast majority of the pay-per-views that were run immediately after the death of WCW and the launch of the brand split were dual-brand pay-per-views. They didn't start the split-brand pay-per-views until almost a, until more than a year after the split. The brand split happened in April of 2002. The first single-branded pay-per-view was June of 2003. Yeah. And, 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 think, and think about this as well. Uh, one of the... Well, uh, one of the uh, pay-per-view comp, people think of one of the best pay-per-view of all time, mentioned 2003. Now, like a SmackDown-only pay-per-view. This is seven months later, SmackDown-only pay-per-view. And we're talking about a great main event and probably one of the worst cards ever if that main event if that main event's different. And a lot of the people from that Vengeance 2003 show are on this show, too. Kurt Angle, here. Eddie, here. World's Greatest Tag Team, here. Ray, here. Brock, here. So a lot of the pieces are in place from that roster in 2003 that put on that wonderful Vengeance show that you're talking about, and I do highly recommend that show in case any of our listeners have never seen it. A lot of the same people are here in the company here. It's just how they're used and the way these matches were put together and then the way the matches were formatted at the pay-per-view itself that lead us to what we get out of the undercard on this particular show, even if the main event is as spectacular as we've said it is. All right, Jayhawk, you mentioned that you have a new podcast project that you are working on right now, so why don't you go ahead and tell everybody about it and where they can find it. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, I, a few weeks, about a month or so ago, like six weeks ago, we started a new, pro, a new podcast called Not Ready for Primetime Wrestling. 
Uh, myself and Charlie Butter, every week we watch something, usually on the WWE Network. Uh, sometimes we'll watch something on YouTube, and we'll kind of give a running commentary on it, uh, kind of like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 type of deal. Uh, I, I know Tony Schiavone used the format on his podcast a few times. We're not the first one to do the format. We are the first one that I know of that are doing that format each and every week. Uh, this week, we cover part one of Wrestle War, uh, War 91. We split that into two parts. And, yeah, we, want, we want to try to keep the ink under two hours, but we want to cover pay-per-view on occasion. So part one is up now. You can get that at smartmarkradio.com. Or if you have an iPhone, uh, we are available on the podcast app. Just search for Not Ready for Primetime Wrestling and load it up there. Watch the show along with us. Uh, the, the coming week, uh, coming Friday, we'll have part two of Wrestle War 91 available as well. Uh, for those of you wondering about my other pro- uh, podcast project, Pro Wrestling Weekend, that is on a hiatus, but we are planning on getting that back up and running probably in January or so. Just schedule being what they've been as of late. We haven't been able to... to really get around to recording that one, but that should be back in January. And you can find more of myself here at the W2M Network by listening to the SmackDown Live and 205 Live weekly reviews where I co-host with Liz Puglisi, who will be back this week after missing this past Tuesday night's episodes due to some family situations there. I want to once again thank Wrestling to the Max's Paul Weezer for filling in for me. In addition, Wednesday nights here on the W2M Network, myself, Stephen O. III, and Brandon Biscobing bring you the kickoff, which is your take on everything that was the week before in college in the NFL and everything that will be the weekend to come in college in the National Football League. That is the kickoff here on, w, on the W2M Network. Uh, Jay Hawk, I can't thank you enough for filling in for Patrick for me tonight. I appreciate it. I call it a lot of fun. You know, you know, if you need me, I'm, yeah, I can be available and get a little bit of notice. So I'll absolutely help you out. Make sure you guys go ahead and like and follow Not Ready for Primetime Wrestling as well for Jared Hawkins and Charlie Butters. Myself and Patrick Ketzel will be back at you next Sunday night at 1130-ish with our WU Reacts to the Survivor Series 2017. This has been Wrestling Unwrapped, episode 51, No Way Out 2004, here on the W2M Network, available online at w2mnet.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you guys next time. The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit w2mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment.